The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Go ahead and open your Bibles, turn on your Bibles. We're going to be in Psalm 146 this morning. Psalm 146, this is our preaching text. This is our last Sunday in this shortened series. We rolled out of the book of Ephesians uh, because of just the season and where we're at um, as a culture. It uh, was appropriate and good and right for us just to open our Bibles to seek a biblical understanding of um, just language that is being used often in our culture today. And so, right, we've been talking about the sermon series, Jesus and Culture. We specifically dialed in on this idea of justice. What does the Bible have to say about justice as it relates to God being a God who is a just God, a righteous God, who acts according to who he is, who in turn calls his redeemed people to imitate him in these ways, And so now the time has come, round third, and head to home. And what I want to do is land us um, on uh, the runway, so to speak, of Psalm 146. Lord willing, you will agree with me that this is a very appropriate psalm, a way to, proper way to um, not only finish up our sermon series this morning, but also a good word for us to land on knowing um, just the, uh, the election coming right around the corner and a way for Jesus' people to be able to walk into um, that Tuesday knowing where our ultimate hope is found. So Psalm 146, if you would stand for the reading of God's word, we're doing this so we can honor the God of the word. Remember uh, the truth that we have before us. Our brother in Christ, the Apostle Peter, told us that the psalmist, when he wrote this psalm, it just wasn't because he just felt like putting something down. He was being carried along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote this. So this is God speaking to you now through Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. 
This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Sermon title this morning, um, you've already heard me use the phrase a couple of times, our ultimate hope. And for the main idea that I think the psalmist would like for us to carry away as we turn our attention to these 10 verses is this, our ultimate hope is found in the Lord who will reign forever. That's where our ultimate hope is to be found. If you want lasting hope, if you want true help, it will be found in the Lord, the Lord God, our living God, Yahweh, who will reign forever. So I'm going to pray for us, then we're going to dive into our text this morning. Father, we're asking that you would magnify your great name. You, the Lord, will reign forever. And our aim right now is to come with a heart of humility and in humility submit ourselves to that singular maxim, that singular truth. The Lord will reign forever. The Lord will reign forever. Holy Spirit, help us to believe this truth. Help us in our unbelief, where we try to go and put our help and hope in everything but you. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom and his kingship to whom we are called to submit. Holy Spirit, come now, open our minds to understand the scriptures right now so that we would walk out of here not the same as the way we walked in. Change us, cut us to the very core, the very soul of our being. Lay us open, Holy Spirit. Challenge us with your word. Change us with your word by the power of your strength. Do whatever it takes to conform us to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do this through the preaching of your word, Lord God. If it is in your name, King Jesus, I pray. Amen. Hey, here's a question for you, okay? Think on this question here. I think it's a question a lot of people ask. I think it's a question many of us have probably asked in various forms. It's a question that many people answer wrongly, in my opinion. And I think what we're going to do is see how we can address the wrong answer of this question through our text this morning. The question is this, what does it mean to have the good life? What does it mean to have the good life. Depending on who you ask, the answer to this question is going to vary far and it's going to vary widely. But according to the Bible, to have the good life is to have God as your king. It says that those who have the good life are those who have embraced the good news. The good news that life with God is available to all who put their faith in the life, in the death, and in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, many people want the good life. If you were to go and ask somebody, would you like to be one who has the good life? I think you would find it rare if someone's like, no, actually, I want a really bad life. Sign me up on the bad life list. Rare would be the person who would answer that. I'm not saying nobody would. 
But I think most people would say, we want the good life. But as you and I know, many attempt the good life apart from the life that can be found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. They ignore the good news of the gospel, which clearly defines the good life as that life, that eternal life, that can only be found in Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. As the good king who makes the good life possible through his death and resurrection, Jesus invites all to come and partake of God's good news kingdom by calling all sinners to repent and believe in the gospel. You see Jesus take this language on his lips when you go into the very beginning of Mark chapter 1 where Mark records the opening gambit, the opening proclamation of King Jesus in verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1. Jesus rolls into the area of Galilee, and Mark tells us he came proclaiming, listen, he came proclaiming the gospel of God. Gospel is the word that means good news, so he came in proclaiming the good news of God, saying this, guys, the time is fulfilled, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in this good news. Repent and believe in the good news that with my coming, the time has been fulfilled. It is now possible for you to find yourself as a citizen in the kingdom of God. This is the good news of God. He is pulling people into his kingdom. And what you will come to find out in Mark's gospel is that it comes through repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, the king. When Jesus showed up in Galilee proclaiming this in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, he came announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. And in saying this, Jesus was saying to his audience that the redemptive reign of God was standing right there, right in front of them. As God's messenger, Jesus came with God's good news message. But in this case, the messenger was the message. He wasn't just another prophet in line saying, guys, keep looking forward this coming king we've been longing for, the one who's going to come and usher in the kingdom. He's he's still coming. He's down the line. No, he came as the prophet who was saying, I am the messenger speaking on behalf of God. Oh, by the way, I am the message that you need. I am the one who's bringing these things to fulfillment. That's why he could say the time is fulfilled. And for those, says Jesus, who repent and believe in the gospel, what they can know is God's shalom. That is, they can know God's peace. Peace that comes as they experience the good life as God originally intended it to be because of repentance and faith in Christ and Christ alone. In a nutshell, The Bible calls this life with God under the rule of King Jesus, the gospel of God's kingdom, the good news of God's kingdom. But the reality is this, it's a reality you and I know, it's a reality you and I experience, it's a reality you and I witness in everyday life. It's the reality that the good life as God originally intended it to be has been and continues to be wrecked and ruined by the fall. 
This is what we learn all the way back at the very beginning of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 3. In the Garden of Eden, what we witness is we witness Satan's dark kingdom steps onto the scene. And through the serpentine lie of the snake in the garden, Satan's dark kingdom smashes head to head with God's good news kingdom. And what we witness in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden is Satan's dark kingdom initiating its smear campaign against God's good news kingdom. And from the very moment that Adam and Eve both believed the serpent's lie over God's truth, the evil king of that dark kingdom staked a claim in the human heart and the curse that was the fallout from them believing the serpentine lie is that the curse has been passed down from generation after generation after generation all the way to today. And now what happens is we all come into this world trapped. We all come into this world enslaved. We come into this world lacking the ability to see clearly what snares us. Now we have this vague sense that Things are not the way that they are meant to be. And so what we do is we begin to grope in darkness for an answer to the brokenness that surrounds us. We grope in the darkness for an answer to the brokenness that dwells within us. In short, the wreck, the ruin of Satan's dark kingdom It does not eliminate our desire for a king with a kingdom. If anything, the wreck and the ruin of the brokenness of sin that entered into this world in Genesis chapter 3, as is recorded there, if anything, the wreck and the ruin of Satan's dark kingdom that we experience without and that we experience within, what it does is it amplifies our hope for a better king. It amplifies our hope for a better king. You see, we see this amplified hope for a better king not only in the energy that gets channeled into all kinds of human effort which promise a renewed and restored world through whatever the cause of the weak might be, but we especially see this amplified hope for a better king about every four years, at least in America, when the soaring rhetoric of presidential candidates come parading across our news feeds and our television screens, offering the hope of renewal, offering the hope of restoration, if only you would just vote for them. You see, something that rings true each political season is the constant refrain of politicians calling us to hope in them. Now, they may not stand up on the screen, they may not stand up on your newsfeed and say, I'm telling you with explicit language, hope in me. They may not use that language explicitly, but implicitly tattooed throughout the language that politicians and presidential hopefuls use is the language of hope. If you narrow it down, specifically the tone of their message, many of their messages can be truncated to this. Hope in me and I will deliver the good life that you want. I will be the one who delivers the good life. My platform, my administration, my policies. If you hope in me, cast a vote for me, I will bring 
some healing to this brokenness that you see around us, this brokenness that we're all experiencing. If you vote for me, I will be the one who fights injustice. If you align with me, I will be the one who brings a better economy. If you vote for me, my administration will help the poor. My policies will secure life and promote family. My platform will provide assistance for the immigrant. Now, we hear these things. We hear this parade of promises about every four years and and then some in between. And deep down, when we hear this parade of promises, we are simultaneously two things, I think. We hear them, we're bombarded with it, our television commercials are inundated with it, and we hear this language, this parade of promises, and simultaneously in that moment, as we are inundated with this parade of promises, we're two things. We're skeptics on one hand, and we're true believers on the other. Skeptics and true believers simultaneously in that moment. Skeptics, because these promises sound like the vain and hollow rhetoric spewed every election cycle in an attempt to earn a vote. Right, So one candidate comes along and says, hey, here is all the stuff I'm promising to you. And there's something in the back of my mind going, didn't that just sound like the cat who said the same thing like two years earlier? And didn't that just sound like the the language of the woman who was trying to get us to vote for her as senator four years earlier, six years earlier? And we just sort of go, okay, people have been saying the same kind of language now for decades and decades and decades. So the same parade of promises come rolling across in front of us. And what we do is with an air of skepticism go, okay, this is just like the thousandth verse, same as the first. Here we go again, another parade of promises that they obviously can't fulfill because if they could fulfill them, they wouldn't be promising the same thing over and over again. But on the other hand, but on the other hand, we hear this parade of promises and we are true believers. And I think we find that attitude of being that true believer in those parade of promises because of the kingdom ache that is deep down inside our soul. Again, we know something is wrong with the world. Amen? We are not living the way God intended it to be. This is not Genesis 1 and 2. King Jesus is going to restore us back to Genesis 1 and 2. And if you want the proof for that, why I just said what I said, you can go to Revelation 21 and 22. We are going back to the garden. And we are going back to the garden because King Jesus is going to make us go back to the garden. In the meantime, we're not experiencing the world as it was meant to be. Something is wrong with the world. And in our hearts, we have this this inarticulate conviction that, man, if if just only the right ruler would just come along, then the world would just be healed of its wounds. If just that that right leader could just show up. He could be the one that would mend the brokenness. And I believe this inarticulate conviction is why every election cycle, you and I ache with hope for the right king to come along and fix it all and set us free from the brokenness without and the brokenness within. But as you and I know all too well, if our hope for the good life ultimately rests in the human effort of men, then we are resting in a faulty hope that will be crushed.
Friends, our psalmist knows this truth beyond a shadow of a doubt, which is why he says in verses 1 through 4, do not put your trust in princes. That's point number one. Do not put your trust in princes. Verses 1 through 4. Look at how the psalmist begins in verse 1. He begins with an explosion of praise. He says, praise the Lord, praise my God, four different times in two verses. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. As long as I'm alive, the object of my praise will be one, the living God, the Lord, Yahweh. So with a dynamic expression of joy, the psalmist calls us to tune our hearts in praise to Yahweh. The sole object of his worship is the Lord. And as long as he lives, he says, if I'm my lungs are inflating and my heart is beating and my brain is waving, I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to praise the Lord. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to worship him. But notice that in comparison to Yahweh, who deserves to be the sole focal point of all of our praise, the psalmist compares this to the world of men. And what we will learn, says the psalmist, is this. We will either learn to hope in men or we will either learn to hope in the Lord. The psalmist calls us to hope in the latter, hope in the Lord, and he calls us to this by highlighting the problem of trusting in men, hoping in men. Look at what he says there in verse 3. He says, listen, guys, come on, come on, come on. Don't put your trust in princes, he says. Don't, don't do that. Don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your, your trust in a son of man, in, in a human being in whom there is no salvation. You see, whether it's princes or whether it's politicians, the psalmist knows that the best of men are men at best. Men are finite. Human beings are immortal. Men and women are limited. In them, he says, you will find no salvation. You will not find help that you need ultimately. You will not find hope that you need ultimately. As we look to the world of men, it's like the psalmist is asking us one question. The question that needs to be upon your heart, upon your mind, as you look to the world of men, is this question. Can this person save me? Can this person save me? And the implied answer in verse 3 is no. No, he cannot. He cannot do it. He cannot save you. And when we dwell upon the answer, this question will place princes and presidents into the proper perspective. Because when you begin to understand that princes and politicians and presidents cannot ultimately save you, what it will begin to do is take what we tend to do, which is elevate men into the place of God and de-elevate God into a place of irrelevance. And when you begin to ask, can this person that I've elevated and placed my hope in for this good life that I long for, this kingdom ache in my soul, can this person that I've elevated into this place ultimately deliver upon the salvation that I'm looking for? And the psalmist says, no, he, she will not do it. They might promise it, 
but they will not ultimately be able to deliver upon that promise. Why? Because, says the psalmist, verse 4, there's no longevity to their rule. The moment, look at what he says there in verse 4, the moment this person's breath departs, the moment he returns to the earth, on that very day his plans perish. His plans perish. In with one administration, out with the next administration. Out with that administration, in with the next administration. Out with that politician, in with this politician. And do you know what comes in and out? The plans attached to these presidents and politicians. And we sort of feel the weariness in our bones of one person fighting for this with his administration. He goes away. His plans walk out the back door with him. This president comes in with his plans for his administration. And then the policies that we like or don't like walk out the door with him. And it's this constant ebb and flow and ebb and flow. And eventually the soul will weary of this. Why? Because ultimately the plans of men will perish. It's almost as if the psalmist in saying this in verse 4 is asking you guys this, asking me this. If we have men whose breath departs, returns to the earth, on that day his plans perish, is this really where you want to rest your hope? I mean, ultimately? Like, is this it? Are you satisfied with aiming so low in your hope? Are you satisfied with aiming so low with your help? Do you really want to deposit all your trust in a here today, gone tomorrow son of man whose promises die when he dies? You go back into Genesis chapter 3 verse 19 and what you will learn is that a part of the curse that will come to man is this. He will return to the ground for out of the ground he was taken for you are dust and you will return to dust. And the psalmist is saying, do you want to trust your destiny to dust? Is that where you want your ultimate trust to be in dust? Don't put your trust in princes. Instead, point number two, put your trust in Yahweh. Look at verses five through nine. He's going to round us into the corner in a direct comparison to the world of men and say, now let me give you a good to keep the language going candidate in whom you do want to put your trust into okay so look at verse five blessed happy is he whose help is in the god of jacob whose hope is in the lord his god highlight help highlight hope all of us in striving for the good life the way we know it was intended to be experienced a law genesis 1 and 2 and revelation 21 and 22 will come as we anchor our hope in the Lord who is our help. Hope and help. So while trust in princes, politicians, presidents, misplaced trust, ultimate trust in Yahweh is a sure trust. It's a surefire trust. Trust in him is the source of blessing. It's the true source of happiness that yields the help and hope of the good life with God under the rule of his kingship. When you get drafted, transferred out of the domain of darkness, Colossians 1, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and transplanted into the kingdom of the beloved Son, you have a lasting hope. You have a true 
hope. And what the psalmist does right now is he goes on a 10-point explanation of why he can say your hope, your help is not wasted if you look to the Lord your God. He says true hope and lasting help can only be found in the Lord who is creator. You see that there at the beginning of verse 6. When he says, our God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. That's creation language. So he's saying, listen, here's how I know that you can have a true hope and a lasting help. It's because Yahweh is a creator. Unlike man, Yahweh is not passing away. Men, dust. Yahweh, eternal. He is the uncaused cause. He has no beginning, he has no end. And in hoping in Yahweh, we are hoping in the God who is eternal, hoping in the God who stands outside of his creation, hoping in the God who is not bound by his creation, hoping in the God who sovereignly rules over his creation. The psalmist is saying that's a surefire place for true help and lasting hope in Yahweh who is creator. Then you see at the end of verse 6 that true help Lasting hope can only be found in the Lord who is trustworthy. Trustworthy. Look at the end of verse 6. He says, our God is the God who keeps faith every now and then. Keeps faith when he feels like it. Keeps faith when it serves him. Doesn't keep faith when it doesn't serve him. No, 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 no. Keeps faith forever. I feel like Sandlot right now, forever. Forever. Like right, they're zooming in on Small's face, forever. Forever. What a promise. Forever. Forever's a long time. You'll never run out of forever. At the end of forever, there's still going to be an eternal, infinite amount of forevers. And at the end of that, what you're still going to find is Yahweh who keeps his promises. Never runs out. Faithful forever. Princes and politicians can't seem to be trusted for a week, let alone forever. But not so with Yahweh. His words never fail. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. His intentions never falter. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. His plans are formed of old. His plans are faithful and sure. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 1. So if you want to have true hope, lasting hope, true help, you look to Yahweh who is creator. You look to Yahweh who is trustworthy. Lastly, you look to Yahweh who is just and righteous. Yahweh, the Lord, who is just and righteous. Listen. What we are about to see and what you've read earlier, it should make complete sense to you. It is no mistake that the psalmist takes us to Yahweh's justice and righteousness as the source of our help. Walter needs some help right now. (laughs) Look to Yahweh, Walter. He's your help. It is no mistake that the psalmist takes us to Yahweh's justice and righteousness. Just think back to the past two Sundays and all of the verses that we're learning about our God who is just and righteous. For all these reasons and then some, the psalmist says, friends, this is why your king, the king of kings, 
is the worthy foundation for our ultimate hope. In particular, it's because he executes justice and takes up the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Do you want someone who can make the promise of poor, oppressed, I will defend you when you cannot defend yourselves? Don't be looking to no politician for that. Look to Yahweh for that. Gives food to the hungry, Yahweh can deliver that promise. Sets the prisoner free, Yahweh can deliver that promise. Not only does he, have we seen him deliver that promise in bringing Israel home from its captivity, but we see him deliver on that promise spiritually every single time someone repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation because the moment that person repents and believes in Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation, what you are witnessing is Yahweh setting the prisoner free. He's setting free those who find themselves under the devil's dominion. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind, physical eyes, spiritual eyes. He lifts up those who are bowed down, those burdened and heavy laden. He loves the righteous, says the psalmist. He watches over, notice he's going to dip into that bag of language we saw last week, immigrant, widow, orphan. He watches over the sojourner, that's the word for immigrant. He upholds the widow, there it is, and the fatherless, fatherless. that's the orphan. But notice at the end of verse 9. Here's why you can trust with true hope and lasting help. Look to Yahweh is because this same Lord will bring to ruin the way of the wicked. Friends, if you want to see it like this, what we just worked through in verses 6 through 9, what we've just worked through is is this, the psalmist has just given you a 10-point resume for why Yahweh is qualified to be the sole source for your lasting help, for your true hope. Moreover, in this resume, we see the fulfillment of all that is described in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone, any of you guys have your Jesus radar ping in there as we we're working through these verses? Or any of you going, man, this sounds crazy, crazy similar to King Jesus here. And that's the Holy Spirit cluing you in that there's something going on at the end of these verses right there. If you are reading these verses of our God who keeps faith forever, executes justice, gives food to the hungry, sets prisoners free, opens eyes of the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down, watches the sojourner, upholds the widow, upholds the faithless, deals with the wicked in a way that is appropriate. If your radar was going, man, that sounds crazy similar to Jesus, then what you are thinking is absolutely right. In the fulfillment of this resume, all that is described, what we see is the prototype, a foreshadow of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming king who is going to come and establish and usher in the kingdom of God. In the Gospels, we see Jesus is the one who executes justice, feeds the hungry, sets the captives free, opens blind eyes, lifts up the burden, and cares for the rejected and outcast. Prove it, John. Well, here you go. Here's your homework. Go read Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2. And go read what Jesus says about these verses when he specifically quotes them in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. 
When you go and read Isaiah chapter 61, what you'll discover is that the language of Isaiah saying, guys, there's this coming one, there's this one who's going to show up, the Spirit of the Lord's going to be upon him, and when he comes, this kingly ruler, this one we've been longing for, he's going to come, and it's very similar language, he's going to bring justice, and he's going to set prisoners free, he's going to open eyes of the blind, he's going to, to lift up those who are bowed down, cast down, heavy laden, he's going to be the one who fulfills it. You jump forward in Luke chapter 4, Jesus Jesus rolls into a synagogue. He grabs the scroll of Isaiah, rolls it open to Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2, reads it to the people in the synagogue, sets it down, and Luke tells us all eyes are glued on him, and he steps forward and says, today what you have just read has been fulfilled right in front of your eyes. Jesus is saying, you don't need to keep looking for the one who's going to come and fulfill these things because he's literally sitting right in front of you. The king and the kingdom are here because I am here. And so with a Christ-oriented forward look, we can sing with the psalmist, verse 10, the Lord will reign forever. The Lord will reign forever. Look at what he says here in verse 10. Yahweh, he will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. God is God for good. And nothing is changing that. The psalm opens with the call to praise the Lord. It closes with the call to praise the Lord. Why? Because the king of kings is on his throne and his rule is a universal rule and eternal kingship. Ain't nobody going to dethrone the king. Therefore, therefore, our God is a sure help for our lives. Our God is our ultimate hope that will not pass away. Now let me say this as we begin to wrap up. At this stage of the political season, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are only a few weeks out from the general election. Votes have been cast and votes will be cast. And when all the counting is done, I am sure there will be many who are going to be happy. I'm sure there are going to be many who are going to be sad. And I'm sure there are going to be many who are just glad that it's all over. Some will have their hopes lifted because their candidate won. Some will feel a sense of despair because their candidate lost. And many will just be glad that it's over. And insofar as it is good and right to experience these emotions because we have aspirations for the direction of our country, for the Christian, we must never, we must never lose sight of this. We must never lose sight of where our ultimate hope rests. Playing your part in the political system is good. Voting for a candidate is right. Think about the two categories we learned from the book of Ephesians and lay it on top of your life right now. Paul opened the letter to the Ephesians by looking at them and saying this, to you who are faithful in Christ, saints in Ephesus. The reality of their in Christness was to work itself out by being a citizen in Ephesus. Part of your and I's in Ephesusness, in Springfieldness, in Auburnness, in Athensness, and everywhere in between 
is by being a good citizen, taking advantage of that which is afforded us as being a citizen in Springfield. But friends, do not lose sight of the fact of your in Christness. You're in Christness. Our ultimate hope must never rest in a party platform. Our ultimate hope must never rest in a political candidate because when it all comes down to it, the best of men are men at best. Policies fickle, platforms change. If our rest in any of the above, our hope will continually be crushed. This is why our God constantly calls us to rest our hope in Him. This is what the old 18th century preacher John Newton, well, Johnny Newt, remember, wrote famous hymn, Amazing Grace. When it came to things like this, this is what he, he said. He, he knew this reality to be true that we must put our ultimate rest and hope in him into these things. When he said this, and there's a quote, he says, there is one political maxim which comforts me. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. If you want a political maxim to cling to in these days, cling to the political maxim the psalmist knew in verse 10. Yahweh reigns forever. The psalmist knew this. Newton knew this. And my hope is that we go into the days ahead clinging to this biblical-oriented, God-saturated, Christ-centered maxim. The Lord Jesus Christ is the King of kings who reigns forever, period. Full stop. Nothing else needs to be added to that. Friends, tattooed throughout our Bible is the good news that Yahweh's anointed king will reign forever. The ruler on the throne is a cosmic king and no one and no thing will ever bring his limitless kingdom to an end. Concerning the king, the prophet Isaiah reminds us that of the greatness of his government and of the greatness of his peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The promise that Isaiah gives that this good news kingdom will never fade is grounded in the reality, says as Isaiah, that the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. When the unchanging, unyielding Yahweh who rules and reigns forever says, I, in my zeal, will bring it about that this king will never be debunked from his throne, you can take that promise to the bank and cash it. It is not a check that will bounce. It is a promise that will yield a thousandfold and then some. You go into the New Testament, it's the angel Gabriel who tells Mary that the baby in her womb is none other than the cosmic king we've been waiting for. The angel Gabriel shows up, there's a tiny little baby in Mary's womb, I think she's got some clue as to what's going on, and then the angel Gabriel basically dips right back into these verses of Isaiah that we just read, and he tells Mary, listen, this little baby in your womb, he will be great, and he will be called the son of the most 
Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus, King Jesus, stepped into the madness of competing earthly kingdoms. He stepped into the wreck and ruin of Satan's dark kingdom, proclaiming the good news that life with God under the rule of God is available to anyone who would turn from the rebellion and trust in him and him alone for salvation. In the Gospels, we learn that Jesus is the one, listen, who brings justice to victory. He's the one who brings justice to victory. No politician can bring justice to victory ultimately. No president can deliver the good life we all long for. The only one who can make promises like these and then deliver on these promises is King Jesus, the Lord who reigns forever. Listen, life with God under the rule of our King Jesus is available to you this morning. It's available to you this morning. And it's available to you this morning because this king was killed on a cross and then three days later was resurrected in newness of life. He had come to sit on a throne and establish a kingdom, not in Israel with geopolitical boundaries, but in the lives of every person who would repent and believe in the good news of God. He had come to save, liberate, and redeem his people, not from a physical enemy, but from a spiritual Satan, sin, and death. And since these things are true, since the good life we long for has been made available through Christ's death and resurrection, and since he is our cosmic king whose kingdom shall know no end, we truly have an ultimate hope in this world. And friends, I pray to God that the day that we go and cast our vote for a prince of this world, that we would go in singing the praises of a king who will reign forever. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, my king, my God and my king, your kingdom knows no end. And for any who are here this morning saying, I am looking to this king, the king who lived, the king who died, the king who was crucified, the king who was buried, but the king who was resurrected in newness of life. I am looking to this king as my only hope of salvation, and in him I trust alone. Oh God, would you stir our hearts to respond in praise like the psalmist did in Psalm 1, 46, verses 1 and 10. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. I will be one who praises the Lord. Why? Because my king reigns forever. And to this I will cling. God, help us in these days to make our actions and our words and our beliefs align into a chorus of praise to him who is the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. It's in his powerful name I pray, amen.